Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode nine. So I know that I said I would be releasing a new episode every two weeks, and I released one yesterday. Um, so here is another one, a special edition. I sat down with my friend Andre Plout to talk about user experience, about uh, education, training, and somehow uh, it really became a conversation around politics. Andre is one of the most politically minded people that I know in tech. Andre currently heads up learning and development at the digital agency Huge over in Brooklyn. Huge is a full-service creative agency. Uh, They work with huge clients, ha, no pun intended, like Nike, uh, Lexus, HBO, Audi, Pepsi, Toyota, Google, Unilever, Comcast, Samsung, Coca-Cola. How do you have Coca-Cola and Pepsi? Amazing. Uh, GE, Fox, American Express. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's just absurd. Uh, We recorded this last week on Thursday. This was uh, basically after Trump had made all three of his statements about Charlottesville, but the day before Steve Bannon was ousted from the White House. It was recorded the same day that the terrible attack in Barcelona happened. Um, Andre is one of the people in my Twitter timeline that is uh, always talking about politics, thinking about politics, um, even when it wasn't sort of trendy to do so. And so we get into some interesting topics around how he got into politics, about what we can learn from the history of the United States. We get into some heavy topics around race, around uh, First Amendment rights, the freedom of speech, especially around the gatekeepers in the technology world that essentially control what people can say on the internet and how much uh, or little they should exert that control. Andre has a really interesting history. He went to film school, then got uh, into tech by working at Apple and did training there, then moved on to General Assembly where he created the first long-form UX course, and got deep into user experience. And the thing I love talking to Andre about is that he really looks at user experience design the way I do, uh, which is really about just solving human problems. And that can be on any scale. And so it's interesting, the through line that he draws between the work he does with UX and training uh, and actually the, the political topics that we cover and how in the end, They're essentially all UX challenges, um, and potentially uh, one could apply the same UX framework to all of these different sorts of problems, which I thought was a really cool insight. We reminisce about working at Apple during the first iPhone launch 10 years ago, and it's just a great conversation. I, I truly enjoyed having it. I felt like I wanted to release it now while some of the topics we discuss are uh, more timely to what's happening right now. And so uh, I pushed this up the queue as far as releasing it early. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I think that the intersection of politics and tech um, and also just people in tech seem to be in a special bubble, which is inside the general uh, bubble that everyone talks about. It's like a sub bubble. Um, and it's, it's good to poke your head out and really, uh, take inventory of, of what the rest of the country and the rest of the world 
is dealing with on any given day. So please enjoy this conversation with Andre Plout, the Associate Director of Learning and Development at HUGE. At any arbitrary point, I will decide this is the beginning. Perfect. Uh, uh, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. How are you? I'm okay. I feel like you're lying. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not lying. I'm doing well. Uh, but it's like we were, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and, and it's been a tough week. Uh, I think it's been a tough week for everybody. You know what's weird? So we had, we had to reschedule... Um, and I remember thinking that week, whenever that was, a few weeks ago, like, oh man, it's a rough week, so yeah. it's going to be interesting to have you on. And then like every week between then and now yeah. has been that. And yet every week, no pun intended, but I'm going to do it anyway, seems to trump yeah. the previous week where yeah. like literally I was worried about, you know, North Korea in a very yes. real way. And like this week, I don't feel that worried about it because now I'm worried about Nazis. Nazis. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I mean, it's it's almost like a like an apocalyptic video game gone wrong, yes. where we get to new levels every you, week. Um, did you read comics as a kid? Um, like, I never read comics. I was really into books with animations and things like that. Okay. I remember I had this uh, children's book that was about. Superman, but it was never like the. It wasn't the actual comic. That's interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, like in the Batman comics, there's a, a storyline which actually then Christopher Nolan used in in um, in one of his uh, movies. But like where the Joker basically sets all the inmates free from Arkham Asylum. Yes, and I it's just I mean, like this movie. onslaught of the worst <laughs> villains, like again and again, and, you know, because like the normal pacing of the comic is like there's just one villain at a time. Yeah. Um, that's sort of how it feels. It's yeah. like the writers, you know, sort of felt like the normal pacing wasn't good enough. So they had to, you know, just throw let, everything yeah, out. Yeah, just out everybody there. all at once. Yeah, the, the North Koreans and the Nazis and the white yeah, supremacists. Just, and just, just throw them all in. Yeah. Um, hey, what? Are, and Russia. And Russia. I don't that even was, remember that. I have to start writing them down. Isn't it amazing that like Russia now feels like, oh, that? Oh, collusion. <laughs> We've. Whatever. Old. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. You know. so just some light treason at this point. Um, yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's. I think it's been a really interesting time. I I really I think back to the days in which we would have conversations about other things like technology and yes. design, and we would have like arguments about design and like what's the best way to approach. Like that seems yeah antiquated to me now. It seems like well whatever. Like, whatever method you want to go with, and you know, for as long as we're alive, seems totally fine, is, is what I think. Our, really, ans our answers have gotten a lot more existential, I think, well, than you, they used to be. It's funny, even with this podcast. So I actually started, uh, I recorded the first two episodes last fall. Yeah. Um, in September, October. And after the election, I just, I, I don't know, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't write about tech. I couldn't do yeah. anything. Um, for a few months. And then sometime in the spring, I decided that I, it was worth talking about other things yeah. again. Um, but I sort of weave in and out of it. It's almost like you have to force yourself because you can just get obsessed. I mean... Totally. You know? Um, I had it, a moment like that today, actually. Um, so this is, this is going to sort of contextualize this episode a little bit and, and, and time box it. But um, 
all of the the stuff in Spain was going on today. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting because I, I was following it on Twitter. Um, and for whatever reason, I then switched in and uh, opened up the Reddit app on my phone mm-hmm. and realized that Reddit had just launched this new feature that was basically called like Reddit Live. Uh, and it was following the events that were happening. Like as Spain, they were. As they were happening and basically posting not even so much posting, but essentially elevating comments that were relevant um, and and productive, right? Like they were showing uh, comments that Redditors were, were posting about the situation, about police reports in the area. Um, and it was really well put together. Reddit, not known for its yeah. like thoughtful product design. Um, and on the Twitter side, it was just sort of not super organized and and just like a sort of a series of tweets right i found myself having to go to news websites yes because twitter like i couldn't get what i needed from twitter yeah. today um and it's funny i took screenshots of those two things because i thought it was so interesting and i that thought reddit was doing something that i think in many ways really twitter should be owning that space of like yes. following live events yes but reddit was doing it in such a, a better more elegant way and i i almost tweeted about it. I almost tweeted both screenshots uh-huh. and said, like, oh, this is really interesting and, and it seems like Twitter should take a, a page from this book. And then I was like, that is so insensitive. Like, I'm literally posting screenshots right. of a terrorist attack right. happening like, right now. Right. And yet my yeah. commentary is about this tech and it was the first time in a long time that I've been like, oh, I kind of want to say something unrelated to all Isn't the awful so things funny? happening. And it just felt wrong Sometimes, to do that. Well, it's hard to find a right moment. I mean, a- absolutely... Um, Twitter's so weird because, right, let's say you, you tweet two things about, you know, a serious issue. Yeah. Um, like this attack in Barcelona. But then you have a thought about tech or a thought about whatever. It's almost like you don't you don't want to tweet in too close proximity to the yes. other ones because it makes you seem insensitive or, yes. or, you know, not keyed into that moment that's happening. And You know, somebody who does that well is is something I know we, we both... Uh, really respect is, is DeRay McKesson. I think yes. his Twitter feed, when you look at that, uh, you know, I think a majority of it being political and, and, and uh, related to the activism that he's working on. And then once in a while, he'll throw in the like, I need a haircut or, you know, right. Like the Spotify weekly mix sucks this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or like I noticed this weekend, you know, he was just tweeting nonstop about Charlottesville and he's like, wait, I got to watch Game of Thrones. Right. You know, um, and it doesn't feel uh disrespectful in any way it really it feels very no, it feels natural to what yeah like to yeah. what is on his mind well, and and i think um you know right he, he's a perfect example of this balance but it, it really is a reminder that like we need to continue to live our lives yes. even as there are sort of these macro issues that yes are are floating around because otherwise it's just like paralyzing mm-hmm. you know um, totally but that guilt is real, like, yeah. like of just wanting to talk about something trivial, you know, or not even trivial. It's something that that relates still, to your work. I mean, right, it's something it that should, should have been. Sure. Um, it's interesting. Reddit's owned by Condé Nast, right? I think so. I think so. Um, I wonder how much oversight there is there because, you know, there's a traditional media company, although not one known right. for like breaking news. Um, I that could be owns wrong. Condé this, Nast may have sold them again. I, oh, I could be that's possible. Wrong. I know they acquired them, yes. but yeah, that's unclear. Yeah. Uh, but that is interesting. Man, it's so funny because it's like this year people use Twitter to complain about Trump and last year they used Twitter to complain about Twitter. Yeah. Um, a lot less complaining about Twitter. Actually, well, I think there's still a good amount of complaining about Twitter. 
this is something that uh, I frankly have not made up my mind on, and I'm I'm struggling with it. Is uh, should Twitter suspend Donald Trump's account? Mm. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I think there's sort of this like base emotion that I want them to just because I want them to. But when I really force myself to think about everything from like terms and conditions and then the consequences that they would face if they did something like that, um, it makes a lot of sense to me why they wouldn't suspend his account. Yeah, I mean, it's a really complex and interesting issue um, that I, I can't think of any sort of meaningful analogy in history. Right. Or, um, in other words, well, first of all, you, potentially he's violating like laws, violating the terms of service of Twitter. Right. right. You know, seems sort of low in the yes. list of of uh, problems, but. But that being said, you know, should someone's status let's let's stop short of Donald Trump. Let's talk mm-hmm. about, you know, Justin Bieber. Sure. Right. Justin Bieber, let's say, violates Twitter's terms of service. He's one of the most followed people. I would imagine that whoever's making those decisions at Twitter doesn't just like boot him right that off it, the service. It's kind of like, uh, well, you know, like yeah. that is not like a low level employee flipping a switch on. Yes, you know, the, some rules, inflammatory the rules are not account. evenly applied. Yes, um, and the truth and is, it makes sense. The truth is that that law laws, um, federal laws, state laws, local laws are are the same way. It's whether totally. or not the prosecutor wishes to prosecute. Because you break a law doesn't mean you're automatically prosecuted. Right. Um, somebody has to press charges, whether that be another uh, citizen or the state. Right. Um, and so in, in a similar way, that's sort of like Twitter, right? It's like, do we want to bring a case against yeah. the president? Exactly. Um, and in, of course, just invite a world of uh, of pain from the entire right wing of the political spectrum totally. and the far left of the political spectrum. Totally. Uh, so it's like how many Twitter users are left in the middle that would actually cheer that on? Sure. And, yeah. and you know, would they be investigated by the DOJ? Are they, you know, I think that it would be a, a world of pain for Twitter. So, so what do you think specifically he's done to violate the, the terms of service? I don't, I don't know if he has, to be completely honest with yeah. you. I don't, I don't know if you could make a case uh, at this moment that he has. The, what I've seen people make the case for is uh you know his his sort of inflammatory comments uh with North Korea and that that you could sort of construe that as uh threatening violence i think even for a regular twitter user that would be a stretch um you know i, I think you could argue that he has gone after a, a few specific people consistently uh, I think you could argue that there there are libel laws with his you know wiretapping claims. Sure. Um, I think I think it's certainly an argument you could make that he's violating something. Um, I'm not clear cut or convinced. Of yeah, it. And, I don't and know that, enough that makes about it. Additionally, right? Like if he were up twenty four seven, just like repeatedly tweeting Mitch McConnell, telling him that he's like a horrible human being, just like nonstop, then I think you could be pretty clearly make like case bullying. for harassment. Yeah, yeah. You know. Which like he's frankly not that far from that. Oh, but no, not at all. But but you know, it's funny like threatening violence. I mean, this is a larger issue than Twitter, but again, it's never sort of been raised. 
is right. If someone gets on Twitter and starts talking about killing a lot of people, mm-hmm. like that's bad. Yeah. You know, um, and also not on Twitter. If you go into the street. Right. Or you get on TV um, and you start saying those things. But when you're threatening war um, and you are someone that has the capability of starting a war, that war is in its own category. It's yes. not like normal violence. It's war violence. Right. And, you know, it seems like services like Twitter didn't really think through the fact that, uh, you know, government officials with the power to start wars would be tweeting about wars. And so their terms seem like they were written for non-presidents. Yes. <laughs> you know, which, what which makes it tricky. What an interesting... And I think this is something that Facebook suffers from. I think any sort of technology platform that was created in the last 15 years that when it started never really accounted for both the scale that it would reach but also the high profile people that would be using it and right. how it would be used. I think it's interesting to think about the fact that I don't think any of those original people who started those platforms thought about those. No, of course. Uh, points and and they probably shouldn't have like it would have been a little presumptuous for them to. But I wonder at what point they decided to sit down if at all to have that conversation. I mean, I think yeah. about um there's this really interesting uh, thing that came out a couple of months ago. Somebody designed a game that you could play online um, to understand how the fake news economy works. So this is really fascinating because coming out of 2016 and, and hearing about the use of fake news and propaganda in order to uh, manipulate opinions and, and meddle in the election through Russia, you heard a lot of that. Um, but I think the story that's not being told as much about this whole fake news thing, which I think is in, in a way even more interesting, is that it's really an economy, right? It's, it's you could really pretty cheaply start a website and, you know, using things like Facebook ads, Google's AdSense, uh, WordPress, and just some content, uh, you can make revenue. Yes. Um, and this game that uh, somebody designed essentially simulated that economy where you had, you started off with like $40, you use that money to get a custom domain, to get a, a website and to spend towards Facebook ads. Um, and then all you had to do is basically steal content from other websites. Uh, so I find another website that has some crazy inflammatory story about an American politician. Uh, I take that content, copy and paste it onto my site, and then I find a group that will align with that content who yep. will be interested in it. I throw some ad dollars on them, and all of a sudden they're visiting my site, they're right. sharing my content. Right, and then you have ads on the site. And then you have ads on the site, and I'm getting money from that. And um, and I think the ones, I, this, I, I hadn't read this piece, but, but I, one of the most interesting sort of self-referential loops is this a lot of the ads on these sites are actually lead to more sites like it right so it's sort of like you know taboola like related content but all in the same ballpark um so sites these sites are paying other sites for that traffic right so it's not only through facebook ads exactly ads on the sort of network of sites it's Um, wild it's this almost black market of of like self-sustaining revenue that uh, and the people who are, are responsible for this aren't 
necessarily malicious actors. They're not state, you know, spies. They're not cybersecurity specialists in the Kremlin. Do you listen to um, Planet Money? podcast uh, I, i've listened have to a you. few episodes they, yeah. so they they track down this guy in california yeah who has um at least one fake news site like a very mm-hmm. popular one and um and yeah he's a he's a, just a guy he claimed to be a liberal yeah and he just saw an opportunity to make some money and didn't really realize the sort of impact it might mm-hmm. have this was even after the election and and he still seemed sort of like in denial that it had any meaningful yeah effect um it's almost it's like, is this just a, a, is this just part of capitalism? Right. You know, um, and this is something I talked about on a, on a previous episode, actually, with this guy Blake Harris, who's mm. who's um, an author, and and we were talking about just the fact that media is a for-profit endeavor. Yeah. Sort of inevitably ends up here, you know, um, and in in lesser ways. Um, you know, even like I saw a headline, uh, I guess on Monday, um, you know, to s- sort of date this, this was Trump's second Charlottesville statement, sure. uh, sort of undoing two, the two one from three. Saturday, yeah. yeah, part two of three or part two of X. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> at this tweet storm might yeah, keep going. Exactly. Uh, and like, um, and CNN had a headline that's like, Trump fi- like denounces Nazis, comma, finally. You know, like that was the main headline gotta, on their website. One of those just uh, silver linings, finding moments of joy in the darkness is is the <laughs> little bits of like wit from like CNN. Totally. Chirons, just like these. But little... at the same time, that's not news. That is I mean, the news is there, but yes. there's obviously a spin. And, and when Some I think commentary, you, you, yeah. You hear about sort of the you know liberal media leaning mm-hmm. in this way. I think it's those sorts of things. It's, they're not just presenting the facts; they're presenting it with a clear spin. Yes, which is fine. They have every right to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's really because they're trying. To, CNN's ultimately a business. They're trying to get sure. people to click on that link. They're trying to make you feel like ha, like good one, CNN, and then you right. share it to all your friends. Totally. You know, and so on. Um, on that. Just uh, on the topic of headlines, we've uh, my wife and I have gotten on this uh, thing that we do where uh, whenever job numbers come out, like at the beginning of the month, like the jobs reports will come out, and I'll always get two notifications uh, announcing the job numbers. I'll get a New York Times notification, uh, and I'll get a Washington Post notification. Um, and you know, before I continue, I love both of those newspapers. I subscribe to both. I think they're. Uh, really high quality journalism, but it's always fascinating to see that the New York Times reports it very factually. It's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 228,000 jobs added in the month of July, uh, you know, within President Trump's sixth month in office or whatever. And the Washington Post consistently will say something like, uh, you know, job growth remains flat at 228. <laughs> it's always yeah. with like a little bit of right, uh, right context. And, yes, and, 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 you, and factually correct. But and you if know. you were getting a notification from somewhere more on the right, right, it would again be the same numbers but yes. presented a different way. Yeah, and uh, the, you know, another strong month of yeah. job growth. Yeah, and, and the context matters. I mean, totally. when, when you are consuming it, even if you're a savvy consumer and you sort of think that you are, uh, you know, or, or you imagine that you're sort of discounting for the spin. Right. 
you're just a human with a human brain. Totally. And and it has an effect one way or the other. And and what's interesting is if different people attach to different like those three notifications like will strike you differently than they would strike someone else. Totally. You know? Totally. Um but you're right. It is it is a for profit enterprise. Yeah, they just want you to click on that notification. Exactly. I mean that's that's what that's what all of those uh businesses are doing and so you know obviously i'm working with media companies every day and and it's interesting because the ones that are more um i don't want to say entertainment focused because that's wrong but you know like a workout Mm -hmm. type of brand or a cooking type of brand or you know even celebrity news type of brand um those for some reason it feels more right that those are are you know, uh, products of capitalism. Like, yeah, sure. Right. Sell the best Consume. recipes. And, totally. Yeah. And you you should make the most money. Yeah. Um, but then when you get into real news and facts, it, it somehow feels murkier. And I'm not really sure what the solution is. Certainly, yeah. I don't want, like, state-run media. No. Uh, you no, know, so, yeah. so what, like, what else is there? Um, there's just, like, for-profit you know, integrity. <laughs> there's totally. there's nonprofit organizations, but yep. but typically they're not as well funded. Um, I don't know. I don't know really what the the solution is, and it's always been this way, of course, throughout American history. But right, and I think it's it's certainly there's there's a code of conduct and and sort of uh, you know ethics and journalism, and <clears throat> I think it's this this might sound contradictory to what I was just saying about those two notifications, but I actually really respect when you read about uh, you know how cnn new york times washington post all these places struggle with using the term lie as it applies to trump yes um and to them there's a really specific parameter to what defines a lie which is that it has there has to be a clear intent to uh not say the truth to, to deceive uh as opposed to you know, the other words that they use, like, an, uh, you know, untruthful or uh, inaccurate or whatever. Um, those are the moments that make you realize, like, there's some real ethics involved here. Like, they're really they're They could pretty easily throw this word around and make a really good argument to use the word like lying. But they don't. Uh, and I think they try really hard to be fair in that sense. And I really I, I respect that. Um so those things exist. And I think that's actually something that going back to the sort of topic of startups and, and how I doubt Facebook or Google ever imagined that their ad platforms would ever be used in the way that they're being used now. Um, sometimes I feel like that's lacking that sense of like journalistic ethic. I think that's still an industry that is a for-profit uh, industry, but has a pretty strong core still of, of, we have to do things that are maybe not the right thing to do for our bottom line, but they're the right things to do because this is a an institution that needs to be protected. Sometimes I feel like that's missing a little bit in, in startups. I feel like maybe we need to take more time to think through what are the unintended consequences? What are the non-revenue-based ethics that we want to put in place here? Um, I certainly think organizations like Facebook and, and Google have had to face those questions as they they have grown. Uh, right, but it wasn't necessarily scale. up front. It wasn't up front, and I think uh, 
they've almost always had to come up with those things when faced with a situation that challenged them in that yeah. way. And I think Twitter's certainly going through that probably later in their sort of life cycle than a Facebook and Google did. Um, I think they've, they've certainly grown more slowly than, than a Facebook or Google. Uh, and now they're really starting to see their platform be stretched to, you know, be used to threaten nuclear war in another country. <laughs> and what does that, does yeah. that constitute violence? I think, I think in many ways it does. Pretty sure they didn't anticipate that. Yeah. One. Well, didn't Ev Williams say something like he, you know, if he'd known Twitter would be used in this way, he like wouldn't have built it or something. That's so know, interesting. Like something, I don't know if he said those exact words, I'm paraphrasing, but like he just really couldn't have imagined yeah. sort of how, how it would, um, and now, and of course, you know, I, I always try to think of analogies to the past. Like, what are other sorts of modes of, you know, um, public communication yeah. uh, or uh, broadcast, you know, television, radio, totally, um, the, the print, you know, mm-hmm. and what would happen then, right? So, like, let's say that a president took out a full page ad in a print mm-hmm. newspaper or printed their own newspaper to broadcast something you know that that um, that printer thought was right inappropriate or Which, something I mean would they have the right not to serve them and then the I think one key difference is that well then you just go to a different printer right uh, and there uh, seems to be much more of a bottleneck in the world of the internet where there are a few key players that control everything you you know like like what what's your what's your take on like what are they called daily storm stormer oh sure like so getting actually, kicked before, off before that platforms. um just to go back to your comment about you know a president taking out a full page ad or whatever i mean that happened right like one of my favorite uh sort of little tidbits historical tidbits about american politics and and uh our election process is uh, back at the very beginning and founding of this country, uh, when uh, you know the Federalist Papers were being written, and Madison and, and Hamilton were, were putting that together, and you had factions between them and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. One of the things that they used to do is that they would write articles under pen names in support of themselves and publish them in newspapers. Wow. So like all of these letters would come out in the newspaper about like Hamilton is a charming man with great ideas. And it was just written by Hamilton under fake pseudonyms. And they would do the same thing to trash uh, other politicians as well uh, with some crazy slanderous stuff about, uh, you know, they, they call Thomas Jefferson an atheist and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. They did that all the time. Um, Thomas Jefferson is pretty famously, uh, had a newspaper publisher on his payroll uh, who would just publish whatever he wanted. Um, so, you know, That's times wild. are times have not changed as much as maybe we think. Yeah. Um, but I think that's instructive. Yeah. To, to know that. How did you get into politics? Like you, you you're of all the people I follow on Twitter that are not literally in politics. Yeah. And like professionally. Um, you know, you seem to be one of the most consistent voices. Um, you know, we think about the ratio of non-politics to politics. Totally. You seem to rank higher. Um, were you always sort of interested in it, in the history? Like, you know? I think 
so it's it's funny i think about politics more than i really should um and in thinking about it as much as i think about it i've thought a lot about this concept of like activation points that i think everyone that considers themselves to be politically minded has some sort of activation point that makes them realize like oh this is important and i should pay attention and i should form opinions on it um and for everyone i think that's different uh but there are certainly flashpoints in history that i think act as an activation point for a large group of people and i think for me and my generation uh my activation point i think was probably the activation point for most of us which was 9 11. um i think that was the moment that i kind of stopped and realized that this this matters that i i need to pay attention i need to figure out what's happening to the world why this happened i just like desperately realized that i needed to learn more about what was going on um and that was really the moment for me that I, I really, uh, I remember having my friends in like middle school and high school coming up to me asking my opinions about uh, the war in Iraq and things like that. And I remember, uh, you know, volunteering for the John Kerry campaign. And I think that was sort of the, the beginning for me of when I really got into it. Um, and I've certainly this it wasn't like a reactivation point but it was certainly a strengthening point uh and i think a uh, another significant activation point for m most of my generation was uh barack obama coming in and and i remember really being very excited about him at that 2004 uh convention speech which was really kind of like the moment he, he became a little bit more nationally known um and really from there, just becoming more and more sort of consumed by it and wanting to learn as much as possible. Uh, I th It's interesting. The way that I view politics, I think, is different than a lot of the way, the, the, the way that a lot of other people view politics. Um, I think a lot of people view it as uh, sort of exhausting and corrupt and there's nothing you can do about it, so why get involved? Um, and I see it very differently. I think politics... From a design standpoint, it's the way that we collectively as humans kind of get together and decide what kind of society we want to have and what kind of world we want to have. And to me, that's really interesting. It's sort of the biggest design challenge you can ever have is like, how do we organize society so that we're prioritizing the things that we care about and and outlining the things that aren't good for us? Um, and I think that debate to me is just an infinitely interesting. It's a very interesting way to put it with these activation points. I think yeah. that's, that's do you, like, super Does that resonate? Like, do yeah, you no, feel like you have an activation uh, point for yourself? A hundred percent. And at different points in my life, I've sort of swayed in and out through activation points. But, you know, like one of the reasons I remember, like the first time we got together for a coffee yeah. um, was uh, because somehow we we were we were already connected through general assembly yep. at the time and and um and you know sort of twitter friends and then you were one of the only other people i had in my timeline that was tweeting about black lives matter sure and i that was a, an activation point for me yeah when i would sort of catch wind of these events that were happening uh and then i would go out in my day-to-day -day life and no one was talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, there'd be like one little headline or one little 
like somehow I, I found out about it in the first place. So it was somehow yeah. infiltrating yeah. my my bubble. But then when I would go to work and I'd go home and I'd go out with friends and I'd be like, did you hear about, you know, this guy that was shot by this police officer? And yeah. be sort of, you know, and then I would sort of either get like, no, or like, yeah, but didn't he have drugs on him? Or like, right. there's always like some sort of dismissal right. of like, oh yeah, but I don't, you know. And I just felt just something was not sitting with me. And, and I decided to sort of basically do my own investigative research. I mean, not in so far as, as, um, firsthand, but more like starting to follow the voices that really were tracking this closely. Yeah. And I discovered this whole world. Um, and it's actually a little alienating when you sort of get activated and jump into something like that. Definitely. And, and, you know, I think it's what a lot of Americans are facing now every day. Like that's how I felt even then. And when, and when we got together that first time, because it was sort of like, I felt like we like knew about this thing that was happening. And the truth is that most white men in tech in New York are not talking about this on any given day. And I felt like very weird about that. I was like, this crazy stuff is happening to like people all the time. And like, no one is talking about it. Right. Which is a great, I think, sort of definition of, of privilege in that sense that you you can choose to not think about it yeah. as opposed to having it be uh, completely involuntary. You don't, it's presented to you every day. It's, it's a part of waking up and walking out the door um, for everybody else. Um, but going back to a, a comment you just made about it being a little intimidating and a little bit uh, overwhelming to sort of go through this activation point and jump in. Um, again, thinking about it almost like as, as a design problem, um, that's something that I also think about a lot. And and to your point, I'm, I'm not in politics, but I think at some point this is sort of coming up in my personal path is if we're looking at this as a design problem, and, and I thoroughly believe that, the more people that are involved in in politics and in, in civic engagement, the better we are. Uh, how do you look at that and say, how do we activate more users? How do we onboard them to this in a way that is less painful? Um, and and I don't think anybody, uh, sadly, A, cares about that that much. I, I think there's some organizations, certainly, that uh, are, are out there thinking about... Uh, civic education and things like that. But by and large, uh, civic education has sort of disappeared from curriculums across the United yes. States, um, which is crazy, really, when you think about it. If, if there's one thing that I, I really believe, uh, and you know me, like I'm, I'm a pretty liberal guy, like I'm, I'm pretty far on the sort of progressive uh, spectrum, uh, but I think if there's anything that really should bind everyone together, regardless of their political spectrum, is that we have a really, certainly imperfect, but pretty fascinating history um, and a pretty incredible system um, that I think has given people a lot of freedom and it has taken freedom away from a lot of other people. Um, I think it's been a constant struggle of, of balance and equality. Um but I think if anything should tie us all together is 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 the quest to learn more about it and to be involved. Yeah, I mean, you know, this whole by the 
people for the people mm-hmm. concept, um, which ultimately was was what was so unique about the founding of of the country. It's almost like you know using these tech giants as analogies, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Like it would almost be like if the terms of service of Twitter actually said, Twitter's whatever you want it to be. Here's a system for Twitter users to decide how Twitter should work. Exactly. Is essentially what a government or democratic government is, right? So in other words, um, the system, if it's working right, actually is completely variable. Right. There's, There's actually nothing that is forever in right. a living, breathing constitution, which of course is funny because we're always talking about things, um, especially, you know, pick any of your, you know, favorite uh, top few uh, amendments. Um, yeah. <laughs> and as if they're completely fixed. Right. And I, you know, I, I hope that most of them are. Um, but th- I've really been thinking about this a lot lately, especially just in the past couple of weeks, like it's not fixed. It shouldn't be fixed. Yeah. If it's fixed, then we're doing it wrong. It should be hard to change things. Totally. But ultimately, the will of the people is the will of the people. And and that could really go in any direction, right? So um, if it turns out that most Americans want something that I think is insane, yeah. I should fight my hardest against it. But the truth is, if they win, they win. Like, right. that's how the system works. And... and um, so I think it's interesting when people on both sides of the political spectrum talk about the the laws and the Constitution in a way, in such a way as if to say this could never be moved. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And and it's it feels funny, right? Because for instance, the First Amendment. Like I personally think that's a pretty good Big one. Fan. We should yeah. we should just hang totally. on to that. Totally. Um, but, you know, like I, th- I think about countries like Germany who have free speech, but you're not allowed to publicly support Nazis. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I honestly don't know enough about it to say whether I advocate for that or sure. not. Um, you know, on the face of it, that seems un-American. But- <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. In a way, it seems it reasonable. It seems both reasonable <laughs> but and un-American. un-American. Yeah, exactly. you know? um, and that's the conflict that, that yeah. I feel, right? Because yeah. it's sort of like, well, you know, what... Okay, we're running this society, and yes, we should have free speech, and everyone should talk about it. They don't be like, really, what good would come of this particular free speech? But of course, that you know, then who decides what speech is good and what speech is bad and whatever? Um, And so it's it's a slippery slope. Um, I don't know, like, but then you know, the ACLU is very firmly look. If if a bunch of Nazis want to go and talk about how cool Nazism is. That is their right as totally. Americans. Totally. Um, you know, something that's been confusing me too is imagine it was ISIS. Yeah. Imagine it was just a bunch of American citizens who went out and were like, we love ISIS. We right. love ISIS. And we're flying ISIS flags. Is that still protected by the freedom of speech or because we're at war with them? Yeah. Is that treason? I like, mean, I, I is think there you, a statute of limitation? You, like, could, you could definitely, I think, make a really strong argument for that being protected under the first amendment but i think it is they would be on a one way flight to guantanamo right. really no i mean and that's just you know well it's just uh, it's part just, racism and part yeah in other words the know. analogy is let's say that we defeat isis mm-hmm. and uh you know 70 years from now there's a parade of isis supporters yeah and and everyone's like yeah that's fine that's basically what we're looking at sure. right now 
And so, but that feels different now because the truth is all the people that are in this country today, most of us don't actually remember firsthand what it was like. Yes. There's a sense of like historic amnesia, I think that's a part of it. Yeah. That, um, and I certainly think this is a big part of the whole, uh, confederacy thing is is you know history books and 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 the story that we tell ourselves and, and children is pretty tame compared to what the realities were of that time um you know you somebody made an analogy the other day about um the fact that you know we don't have a, a museum dedicated to to slavery really uh in america we don't have a museum specifically dedicated uh to the civil war and to the confederacy um you know we we have museums and and memorials for the holocaust um and and rightfully so imagine if germany opened a museum for american slavery right like imagine if germany had a memorial yes of american slavery it would seem crazy um so it's just really interesting that like we just uh we just don't acknowledge our history very well isn't it because we're ultimately purposeful sort of uncomfortable with it i mean oh definitely you know i mean and 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 we would have to reckon with it i think if we were honest about it right like we it would it, it there's a discomfort there and there's there's an inability or not even inability is maybe the wrong word i think there's a um, a desire to not deal with the realities of, you know, if we all acknowledge the mass amount of uh, human rights violations and and sheer um, theft of, of, of generational wealth and property um, that slaves deserved, uh, you know, the years of... of uh, inequality with education and uh, job opportunities. Um, I think when you right, when not you, to mention just like murder and rape, and, exactly, and lynching. Know, right. Yeah, uh, I think if we honestly looked at all of that as a country and and sort of reckoned with it, we would have no idea what to do. Right, it's it's a, it's, it's it's a literal skeleton in a closet that we sort of have to keep in there. Uh, and and obviously I'm not advocating for us to keep in there. I, I think as a country we feel like it's something that right, shouldn't but be acknowledged. The air yeah. has never been cleared. It seems no, e- even not at all in the north, it's, even it's, it's, on it's, the liberal end of the spectrum. And I think a lot of it has to do with this idea of white privilege. Um, and as I'm just living my life, I'm not really you know seeing any consequences of yeah slavery here in 2017 in my life. And the truth is. If anything, I I benefit from well, it still. Right. Well, you, you know, you, like, you are seeing it. You're just not experiencing it, right? Like you're see you're you see it. You just it, you don't feel it personally, and I don't feel it personally. Right, but right. I I the whole idea of privilege is something that privileged people don't like to talk about, um, and and I think that's another interesting thing is if you're with a group of white people. That is something that white people do not want to talk about. No, you know, no. Um, and here we are sitting in this office yeah, talking about it. Yeah. yeah, and and we should. It's we not should. like a secret. No, it, certainly, you know, anyone that's not white knows knows that yes. about it. So it's yeah. not you're not like protecting anyone else. Right. And I think what it is is that is that um, 
you know, even you were talking about just um, how we should all be more civic minded and mm-hmm. realize that we're, we're not just acting in self-interest, but we have a responsibility to the community. Totally. Uh, you know, at the local level, all the way up to the country level. But even that is a privilege, right? Like sure. the fact that we have the bandwidth to think about that um, is different than a lot of people in this country who are really just preoccupied with like, what am I going to eat today? You know? And, um, and so the whole thing, it's not just racial privilege, it's all sorts of, of privilege. And I, and again, if you confront someone about that or not even confront, but just sort of bring up, acknowledge it, you know, it seems like an objective truth about the world. You're richer than most people and you're, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, blank, uh, compared to other people, fill it in Mad Libs style. Right. That's something people are very, very uncomfortable talking about. Totally. I mean, going back to, you know, like, uh, uh, let's do another trip back in time. Uh, It's one of those really interesting concepts that was really sort of ingrained in the beginning of this country, which is what's mine is mine. And frankly, no one else has the right to, to tell me what to do with it, to tell me what I should think about doing with it. Um, That's one of the sort of conservative concepts that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is this idea of, uh, you know, small government. Like, yeah, I just, I don't, I want government to get out of my way. Um, What's weird to me about that, obviously, you know, there's a spectrum of of government intrusion and, and there's obviously... Uh, a side of that spectrum that is negative, right? If you've ever read 1984, like that kind of like fascist sort of uh, dictatorship in, in which government meddles in every part of your life is is obviously not desirable. I, I read a funny tweet a few weeks ago that was like, what they didn't understand in 1984 was that um, you could get toilet paper delivered to your house in less than two hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then people is, don't care is, anymore. Is you, you know? could tell the telescreen right. to reorder your uh your Cheez-Its. Yes, yeah, so then and you're then like, ah, actually it's fine, it's worth it. Exactly. You know? Um but it's uh so yes, that, that that spectrum exists. But what I think is interesting is, you know, we lived in a time back in in the 1700s when uh you would have had a farm and, you know, a mile away I would have had a farm and you would grow tobacco and I would grow tomatoes and we would see each other at the market and I would sell my tomatoes and you would sell your tobacco. And, you know, having anyone come over to your farm and say, hey, like the money you made from your crops, you need to give some of that to us so we can build roads or we need to take part of your land so that we can build a school here would really be an intrusion into everything that you've worked in and, 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 uh, I think it would be reasonable at that point to say, you know what, like, I don't want the government really meddling with what I'm doing. What I'm doing is working. We have a nice system here. Um, we are so far from those times, right? Where at this point, realistically speaking, everything you do touches either the rest of society around you or governments around the world. Uh, so when tonight, we go to a bodega and buy a gallon of milk, the price of that milk is being set by policies uh, from Japan, from uh, you know Germany, from the United States, from Mexico. Um, there's really no such thing now as, as a non-intrusive, you know, let me live my life without government involvement. 
it now it's just a matter of how active you are in that government. Yeah. Um, because you can't really, again, unless you sort of move to the mountains in Vermont and become a recluse, uh, your life will always be impacted by the decisions that are being made. Um, but even your yeah. farm example, so let's assume that us as farmers living a mile away, yeah. we really did want some roads. Yeah. Right. So it would benefit us. So everyone would sort of chip in. It's the way like, you know, if you're throwing a party and all your friends put in a few dollars for the food, mm -hmm. like it's, it's communal, you yeah. know? Um, but then it turns out that I had a much better year growing tobacco than you did growing tomatoes. And so now I'm paying a higher percentage of the road. Mm -hmm. We both use the road equally. Right. And so there's this feeling of like, huh, like everyone's using this road, but like I really paid for a lot of this road, a lot yes. more than you. And, and you just sort of extrapolate that out and out and out. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's where a lot of the conservatism, you know, and, and all the way on the right, you know, the sort of libertarian view where it's like the only law should be you can own land and that's right. the, that's it. That's yeah. the only law, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, and even then, of course, if you, you know, talk about selective amnesia. It's like, well, you know, it wasn't really our land in the first of place. Course, of course, of course, yeah. To sell That's to one another, so yeah. you know. Um, but you're right, and I'm, which is, you know, ultimately why I think 1760 Andre would have still been a liberal. But uh, <laughs> you're you're totally right. I mean, I think we. It is two different sort of uh, call it life philosophies, call it like lenses through which you you see the world. Um, you know, one of the, I think, most infuriating talking points that came up through the healthcare debates or, or votes over the last few months uh, have been these, uh, to me, crazy talking points about, well, why should healthy people pay for the healthcare of sick people? And it's just like, because that's how insurance works, right? Like, that's <laughs> because that's how society works. And right. And often the talking points were, well, young people should be able to pay for very little health insurance because they're not using it as much. And older people who use more health insurance, they need the more expensive plans, uh, which is crazy. But because if you just go down that road, then it's just like you don't need insurance. Everyone should just pay for the treatment they need, but which all, defeats the whole purpose. Exactly. Like, and, and also, sure, like I'm young and healthy but like i could cross the street and get hit by a car tomorrow of like course. there is no well, car insurance is actually a great example of insurance that people seem to understand yes everyone's and, gonna pay and required you yes, can't yes. not have car insurance right crazy right because it is possible that you get a car accident and so your rates may vary but the idea is that everyone's paying most people don't get in an accident yeah. And we all help fund the people that do. Exactly. And it, and that's how you build a society. And and that seems pretty clear to me, right? Like, uh, you know, why should we be paying for prenatal care? I'm a man and, and women need prenatal care. That's crazy, right? Like it's, it's, we live in a society in which I want healthy babies. I think healthy babies are a good thing and for also, this country. Like, I want healthy mothers. I think like, that's a good thing for our country. That's why I would love to pay for that. You were a baby. Everyone exactly. was a baby. Yeah. Like, it's so insane. That sort of thing is like... But it really is a sort of, to me, a pretty clear line being drawn from those days of here's my farm and, and I'm going to build this road for myself, but like, I don't want anybody else to use it when 
you know, when you pay to build that school, you pay to build that road, you pay to improve the market, it will yield returns for you. Yes. Um, it makes for a better society to well, live in. Well, it will yield returns for you on the average. Yes. It doesn't guarantee results for each and every person. Exactly. And the people that do well like that sort of system. The people that don't like it less. And then if you sort of continue along those trends, right. what you end up with is, is you know, richer people that are like, oh, this is working. And then, but then of course, what's funny is most of the rich people I know are conservative. So, I don't know. Then, then they you start to get into like, well, it's all of this communal benefit that got me here. But now that I'm here, I don't actually want to give all my money away. Totally. You know? Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. The whole thing is just yeah. bonkers. But um, this, I wanted to actually, sorry, I yeah. wanted to go back to something. This is like 20 minutes ago that you made this point. But <laughs> yeah. I, I've been thinking about it ever since. Uh, you were talking about uh, this law in Germany that says that, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to support Nazis and you know that seems un-american and and yet it seems sort of reasonable and where do we draw that line um so i in 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 wanting to learn more about government have been really obsessing about uh, the supreme court lately and reading supreme court cases which is just like everyone should take the time to read a few of these because it's really cool it's really cool to see the supreme court really sort of represent i would argue the kind of long sort of tale of american conscience uh good and bad over time um and there are some awful really horrible supreme court decisions uh but then there's some that i think surprise you and make you feel sort of proud and, and help you i think understand really what makes this country country kind of interesting and 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 amazing and in a lot of ways uh one thing that i thought about was uh, There's a Supreme Court case uh, about basically the fact that a school district, I forgot where, um, wrote a law that that required children to say the uh, um, the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, so children could not decline to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning every day at school. Um, and there was a Supreme Court case about it in which the Supreme Court decided that that was unconstitutional. Um, that it was an infringement on these children's First Amendment rights to not be able to decline to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and in this decision, which was just really beautifully written, very easy to understand. When was this about? Um, that's a great question. I th believe... Like ballpark. Uh, like mid-1900s, like 1950 or something okay. like that. Um, in this decision, um, and I'm also going to forget the, the, the justice who wrote this, but... Um, he basically states that it, it is uh, essentially an offense to our values uh, to think that we have to force people to declare allegiance to it, right? That the, the greatest compliment we could ever give to American values is to trust that they're so appealing and so universal that people will be compelled to give that Pledge of Allegiance. And that if we feel the need to force people to do it, then it shows a lack of confidence in our values. Um, and I always really liked that, this idea that uh, ultimately what, what makes the First Amendment work and what makes freedom of speech work is that uh, it requires you to truly believe in something. Uh, and, and if we're forcing people, if, if we're saying, you know, you are not allowed to support this, you know, abhorrent uh 
philosophy of Nazism, um, in a way, I think that's us saying we're not confident enough in our counter argument that right, Nazism is bad, right? right like the, we, the only, we feel the need the to only regulate reason, that. The only reason there are no Nazis is because we made a law that says there's no Nazis allowed. Right. But they would still be there, sure. right? And then, then they would just be maybe quieter and, 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 and having more private meetings. And, and frankly, I don't think that that would be the worst thing. But <laughs> I think that's not the long-term solution. Um, and I think that's something that... To, to look at the really dark events that happened this weekend and, and are continuing to develop um, as it relates to the United States and looking at what's happening uh, today in, in, in Barcelona, I think I, I'm constantly asking myself, what do we do about this? What, what's, what do we do to combat these events and, and this mindset? And to me, it always comes down to we need to be telling a much more compelling counter narrative to whatever is leading these individuals to do what they're doing. Um, because certainly when somebody breaks the law, they should be prosecuted. And, and uh, when somebody commits an act of violence, uh, they should be in prison. Sure, there, there should be a punishment there. But I think ultimately we need to catch these folks so much earlier uh, and and to show them that there will always be paths of hatred and violence, but that the other path has to be so much more compelling and clear uh, that it, it's not even a choice anymore. Um, and that's really hard to do, but I think it's sort of the right uh, long-term solution to these problems. Yeah, in other words, um, I remember even after Trump was elected, there was... I don't know who to originally attribute this to, but it's sort of floating around, which is just like anti-Trump is not like a belief, mm. like meaning that the Democrats need their own to totally. say you're against Trump is not enough. Right. Like, and it's the same sort of thing, right? It's like being against something is not something that you can like get behind and believe in. What you need is actual beliefs, like, right. like something, a counter narrative to use your, your phrase. I think, and and to to be against something is really powerful, and I think that's the you know putting aside the you know Russian involvement in meddling, putting aside whatever errors the Clinton campaign may have made in, in not visiting certain swing states, putting aside all of those things, which are big things, they're not you know they shouldn't always be put aside. We should talk about them, but putting aside those things for a moment, I think. The thing that Trump did uh, is he sort of pulled the pin out of of this political tool that we've always known about, uh, has always just sat there on the table for anybody to take advantage of it. But uh, I think for most of American history, we've done a pretty good job of not reaching for that tool. Uh, some presidents certainly have. I think when you look back at Nixon's campaign, which sort of mirrored a lot of similar language that Trump ran on. And that pin that he pulled, that tool that he used, is uh, fear-mongering, it, it's, it's hate speech, it's building a platform based on opposition and anger and hatred. Certainly, Hitler used this, you know, not to necessarily make a comparison between those three men, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the tools that they used were very similar. Right. It's, it's a tactic. It's, it's a tactic, and it's so powerful. Um, it's so dangerously powerful 
to the point where, you know, I think most of us know that we could use it for power, but we don't because we know it's destructive. Well, it's and we, easier. It's it's so easy. It's it's easier. It's cleaner. It's more simple. It's a it's a blunt instrument. It's a blunt instrument, exactly. You know, and and in many ways, I think that's what made uh, Barack Obama's two thousand eight uh, campaign so revolutionary. Is that he was able to use the concept of hope and optimism in, I would argue, as effective as a, of a way as other people have used fear-mongering. Yeah, that, and, that's a great insight. In other words, he managed to make those positive uh, feelings blunt instruments. Yes. In other words, it, it, was, it was not nuanced. It was hope. It was just, right. here's this big word that makes me feel good. And, totally. And, you know, um, and, you know, like you can use a hammer to build a house for somebody or to kill somebody on the street. It's just a tool, uh, and I think it's it's rare to see somebody use a powerful tool like that on the positive, uh, and I think he did that really well, and, and I think it resonated. So speaking of tools... Yes. Um, Should we bring it back to tech just so that people don't get super depressed? <laughs> we can, we can, we can back our way yeah. into something. Well, I was, I was going to go back to something we talked about much earlier, which was this idea of um, sort of the tech platforms sort of policing yes. the First Amendment, for instance. Yeah. Um, and whether that, you know, makes any sense. Um, and then maybe we can segue from there into some of the stuff that you're working on, you know, by day. Sure. Uh, and just thinking about, um, you know, so maybe you, you should sort of, you know, introduce now an hour in, uh, you know, <laughs> who <laughs> is and, this guy and, yeah. and what you're working on. Um, but, but something I think that, that is interesting about, um, working in an agency, mm-hmm. I would imagine I've never worked in, at a big agency or is, you know, you are, um, and by you, I mean, huge, like, yeah. oh, is, is helping these brands represent themselves in the totally. world. And now seems like a particularly interesting time to be a brand in the world. Totally. Uh, you know, and you see these big CEOs pulling out of, of Trump's uh, advisory council. I don't know if any of those brands, for instance, are huge clients. Probably they, they might be. I don't know. They, they might be. I'm actually not sure either. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so that's a big open topic. But yeah, yes. who are you? Uh, great. Like an hour <laughs> in, that's really the best time. Uh and it's funny, you've, you've gotten to know me intimately in this last hour. Uh, so uh, who am I? Uh, so my name is Andre Plout. Uh, I'm the Associate Director of Learning and Development um, at HUGE, uh, which if you're not familiar, HUGE uh, Inc. is uh, a sort of all-encompassing uh, digital agency, uh, and we do everything from product design and development, uh, web design and development, uh, integrated marketing, uh, really a full service agency in that sense. Uh, we're in Brooklyn, we've been around since 1995, so a pretty long time. Um, and I've been there for about a year, so not, not uh, too long. Uh, before that, uh, I worked at General Assembly, uh, where we met. Uh, and it's funny because, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of shared paths, uh, although we did not go to the same high school together. I'm, am, I, am I the first guest that did not? You're not the your... first, okay. but one of the few. One of the few. Uh, uh, so before that, I was at General Assembly and I was a, a product lead there building 
uh, some of the full-time courses uh, we we designed, uh, particularly focused on UX design, um, which was just an amazing experience to to create. Really, the first full-time UX sort of bootcamp program, um, and then before that, another sort of shared past of ours is working at Apple. Yep. Um, which I would also let's put that on the docket of things that's to talk like about. That's like going well, to high school together. That's like going to high school together. I mean, really working at Apple to me was a college experience. Like it was, I learned a tremendous amount there. Um, and I think a lot of my philosophy around business and startups and how those things should function come from my time at Apple. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, I'm not sure. Do you feel that you had a different opinion of Apple when you were there versus now as a private citizen? I think it's definitely evolved. And I think it evolved more than anything in my time there. Um, and I think it, it the company itself evolved a lot while I was there. When, when was your sort of span? I was there 2006 to 2009. Okay. Which was a particularly interesting. Definitely. So I was time. there from 2007 mm. to... Uh, 2012 when were you did you start post iphone i started pre-iphone wow so early 2007 is a great time to start at apple that was definitely obviously a turning point yes i remember so I, i started at apple in uh early it was it was so this is funny post iphone announcements pre iphone launch wild so really at a very strange time. Yeah. Um, they were probably like, oh, God, we have to ramp up like higher, well, higher, well, higher. So what was really interesting is, uh, so I started at Apple at a small mall store um, in Florida. That's where you're from originally? Um, so that's where I, I grew up largely. I was born in Brazil, moved to Florida super young and, and was raised there. Uh, so this, this store is in Fort Myers, Florida, which now is like a place like there's a large university there you know like there's like but you know back in 2007 it was still small um still largely being developed it's crazy how much it's built up um and the joke was that there were two reasons why my apple store existed um the first is that it was the first apple store that was built with this whole new all aluminum siding and 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 pushed back light panels i'm sure you remember oh, all yeah. of this um it was the first one built like that so it was a little bit of a prototype that's cool yeah and in a fairly low traffic area so they right. were able to sort of test it the second reason which i think is the real reason is um ron johnson who is at that point the vice president of retail at apple uh his in-laws lived in Fort Myers, oh Florida, my gosh. and they needed an apple store to go to so we opened one there um but the crazy thing is I remember days uh, in which we would sit on the tables and wait for customers to walk in. It was literally... Isn't that like, crazy? Like, I, I would oh imagine that store is not like that today. No, it, it definitely isn't. But it was literally, you know, we would have three people working at the store. And at any given time, somebody would walk in through the door and we'd say like, oh, I got this one. And we would... It was still in the days where half the store was Macs, the other half was iPods. We had some software. I remember we saw Apple Works, um, and we would have to convince people that Macs were real computers that could like access the internet and stuff. 
And I remember people being amazed that you could open Word docs and things like oh that. Oh my God, like I was, was just really going to say. Like a pretty, it was right on the edge there of, of something totally different. And, and when iPhone came out, we never had those slow days again, right? Like that was literally the thing that was, it became such a big curiosity at first. Uh, I remember one of the first customers I ever helped uh, with iPhone and they walked up to the table and they, they sort of took it off the dock um, and they asked me, how do you talk on the phone with it? And they started sort of yelling at the glass <laughs> and I was just like, it's, it's a phone. You just put it up to your ear. Um, it's just like a phone. Um, and to think that like that was just 10 years ago. Well, you know, it's crazy. So, um, and you, and you'll appreciate this, you know, as far as learning and development. So, you know, Apple gave, uh, all the retail stores materials about, yes. you know, how to train the employees. Yes. And, and I mean, you, you probably consumed a lot of these. Um, so I was a creative at fifth Avenue mm-hmm. at the time. And, you know, we had sort of been getting extra training, because we were going to be the ones literally doing the one-on-one lessons about yes. how to use these yeah. things. And um, the problem is we never used one. So we'd seen the announcements yeah. and, and, you know, there were sort of the preview animations up on apple.com and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but no one ever used an iPhone. And and it's hard to remember now really what it was like pre-iPhone. Totally. No one had ever used a multi-touch device yes the only type of phone that anyone had ever used was one with a keyboard of some yeah. sort and um, whether a, a numeric keypad or there were some of these like sort of flip Oof. keyboard I had a, ones i had a sidekick before my first oh yeah iPhone. i had, I had an best. lg like like sidekick ripoff Oof. you know um and yeah and and so um anyway so the plan was that you know i guess we were going to open at 8 a.m the morning of yeah and at 6 a.m., the entire staff was coming in. Totally. For I, I went to the same exact yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm like sure this, it was this We was, experienced the same thing on the same time zone. Yes, you exactly. and I were having the right. same Isn't experience. Isn't that so funny? Yeah, right. it's kind of cool. Um, and, and so many, I mean, think about it. Thousands of people had that ex- same exact experience that, yeah. that same exact day. So anyway, so we were at the store late the night before, mm-hmm. um, basically reviewing everything because the creative team was going to lead the in-store training. Yeah. The next day for all the specialists. And totally. Fifth Avenue at the time had, I don't know, 500 employees or yeah. something. Something wild. Now I think I read they have like almost a thousand employees. It's crazy. Store, just like absurd. Anyway, so it's like almost midnight. Yeah. And we're still just sort of cramming and deciding who's taking what and how are we going to organize it. It's really amazing. I don't know if it's like that now, but a lot was left up to the discretion of the store. Yes. Like as far as how are we going to train these people? How are we going to organize it? Where should we like queue people up? Yes. Where should we, everything is, is I feel like discretion. that has changed significantly. Probably. I think that's one of the things that I remember in, in my later years at Apple doing learning and development on the retail level and feeling less and less flexibility. Yes. And yeah, we can get there. Later, yeah. Yeah. And, and that I'm in some ways is good. Yes. But then definitely. other, but this was very just sort of like whatever, Super, not, not yeah. in a disorganized way, but in a, there was a lot of power in the States. Let's put it that there way. There was a lot of power you in the know? States. But there was also, I think, a sense of... And, and this is, I think, what changed the most for me at Apple over time that I was there. I think there was also a, a, a sense of... That the whole company was a sort of rogue agent. That we were doing something so different and so revolutionary. Um, and that the stores were 
very much a part of that. Yes. Um, yeah, we were the, the last mile. I mean, we were yeah. we were the ones that really drove all that home totally. in, a, in a real way. So anyway, so uh, whatever. Long story short, at midnight, yeah. they let us open the boxes. Yeah. And there's a very small group. You know, I'm talking like, like t- maybe 10 people are there. Yeah. Senior management and a few... Uh, uh, maybe two or three people from the creative staff that were that were had stayed late to sort of prep, and they had these big black cartons that yeah. were marked "Do not open before this date" and like so so crazy. So I, I'm one of the first, however many people on the planet, totally to to have used an iPhone, absolutely, and we touched it, yeah, and we saw it, and we scrapped the whole thing, yeah. We had to redo all the training material yeah. and we sort of like made our own uh, because it didn't cover it. Like, yeah. like it, it, we had been prepping without ever having used it. Totally. And once we used it, we were like, wait a minute, this is so different. Like yeah. this is something so incredible. Um, and to the credit of, of all the amazing people that worked at the store, I mean, they, everyone came in at 6 a.m. and we took those two hours to cram. Yeah. And then of course it took weeks or months to really get acquainted with the thing. Totally. I remember Apple was giving free iPhones to every employee. Yes. Um, but it was going to take weeks to actually get them. Totally. So I, after my shift ended that day, I stood in line and bought a I, phone I for $800. I did the same exact uh, thing. And then I got a free one like two weeks later. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I remember, you know, I, I was not one of the lucky few that were there at midnight, but I, yeah, I showed yeah. up at 6am. When our store was weird, it was open 24 hours That's a right. day. That's right. So, I don't know if that would have happened yeah. at any other store. And I, th- I, th- I do think people were there setting up. Right. Um, but I remember coming in at 6 a.m. And it was the craziest thing. I mean, I, I was super excited about this. I had sort of done all my research. I really thought I knew this device that I had never interacted with inside and out. And I remember our lead genius, who was the one at that point who was running this training for us, walking out from the back with just like a stack of like eight of them right like you go from this like mythical device that you've never seen in person you've never touched and you're it's literally this like foreign object you go from that to like a guy walking out with like eight <laughs> stacked it's it's like a bizarre yeah visual and he handed them out and i remember uh grabbing one for the first time and uh swiping to unlock and just the first thought I had when that happened was just like, I can't believe this works. Like it, <laughs> it just, as much as I had obsessed over it for months, I never actually sort of believed it would be as sort of incredible as it was. And it would met every expectation. I remember that day, um, the networks going down mm-hmm. that it was, we, I think we opened at 9am for actual sales and 9 a.m. came and the entire eastern seaboard of Apple stores crashed the payment system. AT&T Edge just yeah, <sighs> and we and we basically had to wait like 20 minutes and it came back up and then Central Time came in, crashed again. Wow. An hour later, we waited another 20 yeah. minutes, uh, and then Pacific Time came on board, crashed everything. I I was just it was insanity those iphone launches i remember like the 3g launch yes got totally messed up like yes with the the network or i don't remember exactly what um i think ron johnson was in our store for that one sounds right uh the 3g launch so i pretty much i think played every role at an apple store known to man starting off as a seasonal specialist part-time specialist full-time 
personal shopper, uh, creative. I was never a genius. That's the only one that I've never done. Uh, but I was sort of like one of the first versions of a family room specialist for a little while. I did visuals. So by the time the 3G came out, I, uh, that was a crazy day for me. I literally worked an all day shift, uh, went to one of our closest retail stores. This is still in Florida. Um, which was like an hour away, helped them do their overnight to switch over all their visuals and and their equipment from like 10 p.m. to like 3 a.m. Drove back to my home store and did our overnight from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Trained the staff that came in on the iPhone 3G at 6 a.m. and then opened the store. So I was literally awake for like 30 hours or something. (laughs) And I remember... It was like afternoon at this point and I was talking to a customer and I was exhausted and I almost had like an out of body experience where I, I remember watching myself talking to this man and thinking, I have no idea what he's saying because I couldn't focus on it. And I remember just interrupting him. I literally don't remember to this day what he was talking about and just said, I'm so sorry. I have to go now. And I just drove home. I fell asleep while driving like Oh. almost crashed my car it was like that it was like no that kind I, of like I those had, were the days i had so many days and sort of episodes yeah. like that while working at apple i mean just just it's unbelievable um yeah exactly like like just working around the clock just, totally and, and and really because like we were really just on the front lines and, and like i literally did not want to be anywhere else no like, it was that the was most just, exciting place you could be it was so exciting just, it was I mean, I remember there's, you know, they used to make those t-shirts with like funny sayings on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one time this t-shirt was around for like maybe two months that said um, uh, something like, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, And and I was like, I I could and I do. And that's my job. And even if they didn't pay me, I probably would come in here maybe an hour a week and still do this. Isn't that the most amazing thing that. I feel like the the ultimate Apple Store employee is someone that talks about it anyway. Totally. Right? I mean, I was always the person that my friends and family were asking questions to. I was obsessed. I was, and now I was just getting paid to do it. Exactly. You know, that's, that's how I got that job. By the way, I literally, I was so young. I was like just starting college, and had never worked anywhere else before, and I kept coming to the store and giving my resume to the store manager, and like he would never call back, and never went anywhere. So one day, I uh, I was studying film, so I knew Final Cut. So I went into the store. I went straight to the Mac Pro and, and to the biggest display in the store. And I literally just started just editing video on this computer. And people started gathering. And I literally just started giving a workshop. I was not working in Apple at the time. I just started teaching people how to use Final Cut. And this guy came over. Uh, the manager and he was like all right like come back next week and that's amazing like i was just like i was like i'm gonna work here one way or another like you're gonna pay me or i'm gonna do this yes yeah it's amazing that's amazing i i talk about a lot but like i can't recommend enough that young people um that are interested in tech design customer support any there's so many you know sort of flavors that you could take away from it should should go work at an Apple store. It's unbelievable. Sure. Um, so how did, how did you sort of get into UX? Yeah. Um, because 
uh, you know, like how did you sort of make that transition post Apple sure. into the rest of the world? Um, you know, I always think about that as I didn't realize it at the time, but sort of laying a lot of the groundwork for my understanding of how users behave. Definitely. Um, and, and in retrospect, that's like unbelievably valuable time spent. Yes. You know, totally. And, and, you know, I know we've talked a little bit about this before that there are, there's really the experience of sitting next to somebody and watching them use technology every day for years, uh, which is what you did and yep. what I was doing. Um, you don't realize how much you're learning in that process. You learn how to communicate with people. Um, you learn about how people learn. You learn about how people interact with technology in a really intimate way. Um, I remember having to explain to somebody what the internet was like literally uh, this is, I'm not making the story up. Somebody walked into an Apple store once came to me and said, uh, I used to own a Mac, uh, back in the early nineties and, uh, it was stolen on a trip. And I was like, you know what? Like maybe I didn't need it. And I basically have not had a computer since. And now I'm interested in jumping back in. Can you catch me up? Uh, and they literally brought a magazine to me and they pointed to a hyperlink. Like in this article, it's like, find out more, go to our website. And there was a hyperlink. And they said, like, I want to find out more. Like, what do I do with this? Like, what do I do with this link? Um, and it was mind blowing and such a cool opportunity to literally be like, allow me to introduce you to the internet. <laughs> you know, like, let me How old is show you the that? way. Uh, they were older. They were yeah. they were probably in their like late fifties, early sixties. Right. right, but not like ninety. No, no. You know, so as the internet, uh, and, and the internet had existed when this person was in their forties. Definitely, and right. and certainly somebody that I was shocked had not kept up with with yeah. the world. Um, so yeah, I think to your point, I was learning a lot about what user experience meant. I was learning definitely a lot about what customer experience meant. Um, and to answer your question about how I got into UX, I think it's actually better for me to explain how I got into learning and development first, which is I went to film school after film school was, you know, like a broke New York city student, uh, and thought I'll go back to Apple. I, you know, I left my job at Apple from Florida, moved to New York, uh, and still loved the company, loved the brand left in such a great, on a great note, um, and thought, I need money. This is something I love to do. Um, so I'll go back to Apple. Um, and so started working at the Soho store and almost right away started doing learning. Uh, I had done some of that um, at the, the Florida store that I was working in um, and, and jumped right into that working at Soho is basically just onboarding new employees and, and tr teaching them about Apple products and teaching them about uh the retail stores and all that. Um, and at that point I had like a little bit of an existential crisis, uh, where I realized that film was not my career path. Um, I, there was something about the industry that I didn't love. I felt that it was sort of wasteful and, 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 uh, sort of cutthroat and, and sort of self-interested. And I just didn't want any part in that. Um, and so I was really pretty sort of confused and lost and, and, you know, I, I just, finished all these years of studying this thing that now is not going to be a part of my life. It felt like a breakup. Um, but at the same time I was doing 
training and facilitation and and uh, getting to work with actually a few folks from the Fifth Avenue store to build learning experiences um, and really enjoying it. Um, and that was a really pivotal moment for me where I, I asked myself, what was it about film that originally excited me and, and what was it about it that I wanted to do? And what is it about training and learning and development that I love? And, and is there a, a connection between those two things? Um, and I found that there was. Basically, in thinking about all of the things that I fantasize about in being a successful filmmaker, the things that excited me uh, wasn't the money or the fame. It was just the ability to tell stories and to go around to all these different places and see people react to those stories. Um, I always would fantasize about, you know, like going to a movie theater and watching one of my own films and seeing the audience react to it. Um, I think that was always what was interesting to me is a, I want to see like whether the stuff I think about and the stories I want to tell resonate with other people, but more than anything, I want to see if it resonates with a bunch of different type of people so that I can see an audience laugh or cry at something in Wichita, Kansas, and then travel to Japan and, and see a similar reaction. I think that was really interesting to me. And I realized I could do the same thing through learning and development. I'm still creating an experience for people. Uh, in this case, it's in a classroom or like a hotel conference room versus a movie theater. But it was still an experience that I could create, that I could uh, facilitate literally um, and see people react to it and respond to it. Um, and that's still the thing that's really interesting to me about learning development. So that was the first piece. And you can already kind of see that like UX is the same exact thing, right? It's, it's yeah. creating experiences for people and learning about how they respond to it. Um, I think is really cool. I think that's, that's like the core theme of everything that I'm really interested in. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying about politics, right? Is how do we create a system and a government that people are reacting to and seeing like what works and what doesn't and what we're prioritizing. Um, I think like group societal experiences are the things that I'm really interested in. Um, so I got really heavy into into training and development at Apple and then joined GA as uh, an instructional designer uh, where I was just working with subject matter experts and, and folks in these industries from digital marketing to UX uh, to create learning experiences on those topics. Um, and that's where UX sort of became uh a thing for me in, in building out this UX full-time program at General Assembly um, and getting to work with uh, some really super brilliant uh, people. Uh, Christina Woodkey was one of our first, uh, was the first instructor uh, and, and the architect for that experience. Uh, Hong Q, who's this uh, incredible designer and engineer, one of the first hires at YouTube who uh, built that uh, program with us as well. Um, and it was through those folks and relationships that I, I built in that process that I really learned from the like four fathers and mothers of UX what it was all about. And uh, when it sort of, when I became aware of it, when I started learning about it, it was like a light bulb was just like, oh yeah, this is the same thing I'm doing. It's, it's filmmaking, it's learning design, it's UX design, it's just understanding people so that you can create experiences that they will react not just positively to, but the way that you sort of expect them to react. Well, yeah, like you said before in the context of politics, but it's a design problem. Yeah. And, and thinking about 
the world think about life is basically a series of experiences right and when i talk about user experience i really mean it in the broadest yes sense it is totally any experience mm-hmm. and um and that's not necessarily how people think about ux yeah. when they think like oh i'm going to be a, a ux designer they're thinking about a, usually a digital product totally you know um but i think about it in a much much broader sense the way that you're talking about it um one of the coolest uh things i did during my tenure at ga in building our ux program is i got to attend uh, a design conference in san francisco in which uh don norman spoke uh don norman super uh uh famous for his book uh, design of everyday things uh really incredible guy and his talk he, his was like the sort of keynote speech uh i thought was brilliant he went on stage and said uh ux needs to grow up uh and that we are using this term too uh narrowly uh, and he made the exact same point that you made which is uh we're spending so much of our time and energy and and debate on what buttons should look like and where you should place them but if, if we can allow UX to grow up, we can solve problems like uh, criminal justice problems, or we can solve problems like transportation uh, and access to healthcare. Um, UX can contribute to those things. Um, and I was just, you know, I, I think I'd always thought of it that way, but hearing it from somebody who is I must have so read about that talk or something, because that... That sounds familiar to yeah. me. Um, maybe you tweeted about it. Maybe. Um, it's quite possible. But really that um, that is right. And I think yeah. a lot of things start as sort of industry specific mm-hmm. and then broaden. And mm-hmm. it seems like UX is one of those things. And we're seeing it a little bit in you know these sort of digital hardware devices or Internet of Things where all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, a UX designer could create a refrigerator. Yeah. But somehow the people that were building refrigerators five years ago are not UX designers. Right. But right. it's just because you don't call them that. Yes. They're still ex- they're designing the experience of using a refrigerator. Totally. It's just that now that, that everything's becoming like connected to the internet or digital in some way, it like counts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but it's interesting to think about basically all problems, even societal problems, highway congestion mm-hmm. as a UX issue. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, maybe the term user experience isn't... No, no. Broad enough to, to well, that's, encompass That's how I things. start my class every semester. I'm like, I'm like, look, UX existed before it was called UX, yes. and I'm sure in the future it'll be called something else. Right. And that's what's funny, and, and this is a big design of everyday things concept, right, is that everything except for, well, you know, even nature, I think you could argue, was is, is designed but through just millenniums of gen, you know iterations and, and cancellations and Darwinism lean and all startup of that. Exactly. over and over but uh, everything is designed right and it and every everything that is man-made everything that is around us was designed um, the question is whether or not it was designed through a series of sort of default decisions or whether it was designed with thought and purpose um, and I think the things that we tend to struggle with the most were the things that were designed sort of thoughtlessly and 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 by default right uh you know this glass needs to hold water so it needs to be this shape but are there better ways of doing it are there you know or is there a thumb hold that we could place there that would make that kind of make that experience a little bit better well and if you can get back even you know to sort of working from first principles why does that user 
need to drink water mm-hmm. or want to drink water. Exactly. And are there other ways to do that besides a glass at all? So maybe it's not a question about what should the glass look like. It's more like what's the best way to give this person exactly water and and maybe you know in the future it's that every morning you take a pill which hydrates you for the day yeah and there are no more glasses right you know totally and and I think you you begin with this idea of like are we doing this thoughtfully and strategically or or is it default uh, and then the second question becomes if we are doing it thoughtfully and strategically uh, it goes back to our sort of fake news discussion uh we can purposefully design it in in a way that's malicious right like there's sort of dark patterns and things like that within ux where we can purposefully design something to be difficult or problematic um i certainly think manipulative yeah exactly and i think you know i'm really trying to just tie our whole conversation together right like you can look at the justice system yeah and you can say that that was designed uh maliciously right like we can say that Something like a for-profit prison is designed to have returning prisoners, right? Like, and, and that's a very purposeful thing. Or you can design it uh, for positive sort of outcomes. And and I think it gets murkier when you're talking about what positive means. Does it mean more revenue for the company? Does it mean a positive experience for the customers? Where do you find the balance between those things? Uh, you know, when you're buying flights whether the checkbox for flight insurance is opt-in or opt-out, right? Like there are these sort of murky decisions that you have to make and that's on a very micro level, um, well, but and, somebody's making them. And tying it back to what you were talking before about media and how there should be some sort of other metric than only revenue yes. or only profits. And it's the same sort of thing. In other words, fine, you're a private prison corporation. And so... Um, are you optimizing for you know the well-being of society or the mm-hmm. well-being of these prisoners right. uh, and the you know uh, and their sort of return into society, or are you optimizing for return users the way that Amazon does? You know, right? Um, and I think this is ultimately where capitalism, which is almost its own sort of Darwinism, mm-hmm. like the rule is optimize for more money, yeah, and. And that's it. It you set it loose and it and it goes um, versus optimize for, you know, uh, the the most optimal arrangement for the ma- highest number of people in the society yeah. or something. And and do those two things just inherently conflict? Mm-hmm. And it's and that's where you know my my liberalism shows through. Is to me that's the purpose of government right like to to look at something like a private prison system and to say that you know unless you have some crazy situation where you flip the business model on its head and the people that are actually imprisoned in the system are shareholders of some sort and and the only way to make profit is to rehab rehabilitate those folks to to enter the like i can't even imagine what that business model would look like the only way that private prisons make sense is if they get money from having more prisoners, right? And so that's, to me, a place where a government that does not have any incentive uh, to monetize themselves through something like this should step in and say, this isn't right, that this this should not exist um, because there's no way to make this business model uh, 
function in a way that benefits uh, society. And, and, There's and, nobody and, should be profiting from this. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that seems like a, a pretty good barometer, right? So, right. but but it, then it, you know when you get into things like healthcare, it's like okay, someone mm-hmm. needs emergency surgery, right? Well, the natural things is like, well, no one should be profiting from this person that was just in a horrible car accident and, or they're exactly, but, but we, that's of course a very profitable business. So like, you know, should the government take over every hospital and then you just keep going industry by industry. And it's like, you know, it, it's, it, it's a complex issue to say the least. It's it's, absolutely. Um, I certainly think healthcare is probably one of the most complex. Um, and I think that's true, right? That, this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about at GA specifically is about uh, for-profit education it, and and this idea that should people make a profit on education? And, and I think in general, absolutely. And I, I think that's fine, um, especially when you're talking about secondary education, postgraduate, uh, sort of additional sort of things like that. Uh but ultimately, do I think grade schools should be for profit? Do I think that uh, people should be specifically looking to profit from children learning and and uh, from an institutional standpoint, not like books and yeah, yeah, whatever? Yeah, yeah. Um, and ultimately, I don't I don't think so. I think right. education should be free. It should be available to everybody. But isn't there also an issue of incentivizing great teachers or doctors totally. or and whatever? That's absolutely right. And, and especially in a in a scenario where there are public versions funded by the government and private versions that pay better totally naturally um the individual sort of you know talent will gravitate towards the higher paying for sure jobs um and again i think that's a place for the government to sort of regulate those things and add certain incentives um i think that's something that you know i i may be sort of going outside my realm of expertise but i think that's something that works fairly well in medicine where you know, doctors are highly specialized, highly trained uh, individuals with just unimaginably difficult jobs. Um, so being well compensated makes sense to me. They should be. Um, but frankly, so should teachers. Right. And so, uh, you know, teachers are still highly trained, uh, you know, highly skilled individuals with really hard jobs. Um, and we want them to be that. Um, we want more people like that teaching our kids. Um, so how do we incentivize that? And I, we're doing a very bad job of that right now. Um, I think that's a place for the government. Um, but, you know, uh, where were we before we, we went on this? I <laughs> well, think just here, design, right? Like well, just sort of yeah, purposeful design. Purposeful design. And, and maybe, um, you know, we, we've sort of been following your, your career trajectory, yeah. but, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on now yeah, at totally. HUGE. Um, so at HUGE, we're really focusing on uh, how do we sort of institutionalize uh, all of the stuff that we're doing here? How do we um, take the tremendous amount of talent that is, is at HUGE, um, all of the amazing things that we're learning every day, uh, both through our client work, but also through just research projects and and uh, initiatives that we have going on to really try to keep ourselves as an organization kind of ahead of the pack. Um, how do we create a system around that? How do we formalize it? How do we standardize it? Um, Huge has around 15 offices across the globe. So how do we make sure that everyone across Huge gets that experience? Um, I think what's so interesting about agencies 
um, is that not only are you working on new and different ideas all of the time, as opposed to a startup where, you know, you there are different things that you're working on, but primarily there's probably one big main product or, or problem that you're trying to solve and, and you work on it for years. Um, at an agency, you really have that diversity of, of projects and problems that you're solving. Um, and beyond that, you always want to stay sort of ahead of whatever possible ask a client might bring to you. And so we spend a lot of our time talking about uh, emerging tech. We talk a lot about VR and AR and, and, and the implications of those things. We spend a lot of time talking about uh, autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars and what are the implications that that has uh, on our everyday lives, right? This idea that there will no longer be a, a commute in a sense, right? Like right now I wake up, I'm in my home, uh, I brush my teeth, I eat breakfast, and then I get on this metal tube uh, for 30 minutes where I'm just reading, there's hundreds of other people around me, and then I arrive at my office. But in the future with available autonomous vehicles out there, I might be able to just step into a room that has internet, that has a table, my computer, a whiteboard, just like the room that we're sitting in now. And while I'm in that room, I get to work, right? Um, what are all of the things that not driving or not having to be in a subway, what will that do in terms of changing human behavior? And, and to take it even a step further, imagine if your work was in virtual reality, yeah. where it's not just that you still have the commuting time, but you are available to do other tasks, Totally. but that there is no commute. Yeah. You have your bowl of cereal and you throw on your headset and you're there. Yeah. Um, we talk about AI a lot and, and the implication that has on the future of, of workforces. Um, and that's actually been a really interesting sort of cross-section with politics. Um, there's a really big shift going on right now that uh, we're sort of talking about, this idea of, of AI and you know artificial intelligence coming in and, and taking jobs that uh, might not be around for that much longer. Uh, and what does that mean, right? Like, if we can take the work uh, that somebody is doing right now and turn it into a bot, turn it into an algorithm, uh, does that take them out of a job? Do they, do they lose that income? Uh, or is there still some sort of critical thinking involved or some sort of human input that's still required? Um, yeah, those are some of the things that we're talking about alongside all of the other sort of more established tech and, and disciplines that are across huge um, that we just want to be able to document and 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 teach to future folks who, who work at huge and folks outside of huge we want to be able to sort of uh, teach the the methods and sort of ways that uh, we're using right now it's fascinating and it's it's awesome that you guys are, sort of have the bandwidth to to go those places it's very short it's a, it's a little bit of bandwidth. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it's, it's sort but of it's, it's more sort of than always, most, right? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it sort of it's a struggle between client work and all of those things. But yeah. um, that's a big part of my role is to be sort of the one who's not directly working with clients uh, to try to have some of those conversations. Right. Sort of be uh, the advocate for those. Yeah, um, our CEO is is super focused on those things, and so he's certainly a force that brings up uh, those topics frequently. Um, 
and frankly, we're talking about them now because we know our clients are going to be talking about them exactly. in a year. Um, and so to be able to say that we've researched this, we know a lot about it, and we're the right people to work with you uh, on figuring this stuff out is is ultimately what we're trying to get to. Yeah, typically in my experience, these you know sort of established companies, whatever industry they happen to be in, they are they want to start the research process mm-hmm. after it's already yes sort of gone over the edge of the totally. mainstream like you we know, need to catch up yeah yeah like like you know the ceo has read about it enough times in the wall street journal yes that they yeah. forward it to you know the executive team and say where are we on ar totally. you know um, and then there's sort of a scramble and that's exactly when they would turn to an agency mm-hmm. like huge yeah. to sort of say like you know are you guys doing anything with this and it's like well yeah actually we've been thinking about these issues for a year or two now exactly. you know um and so you make up for sort of all that lost time yeah um, and I think that's that is the the sort of thing that's that's interesting. And then of course, right. But then you look at your own company, and we face the same at Maz. And you have just like the your clients, you have to run the business that exists today. Exactly. Um, and so it's sort of you know th- that same you know distribution of time sort of finds its way all the way down the yeah. the chain. Yeah. Um, but it's very valuable if if you can almost be doing that we call it like external r&d mm-hmm. um where that's that's the the sort of one of the roles that we hope to provide to our customers sure is look you're busy running your business today but somebody has to be thinking about this stuff totally so let it be us yeah you know yeah um well listen man uh it's been a blast i feel like we covered you know half of the things I know. we this could this could we keep could have so i hope yeah. you'll uh you'll join me again and maybe we'll anytime We'll tackle some of the rest, but um, I mean, the next time I join you, we probably will be in bunkers, right? Like, who, who knows? <laughs> I mean, let's let rate, this moment be you know? a little time capsule. Pre bunker, pre the times of pre bunker, uh, sound will probably be a little bit tinnier, <laughs> you know. Like, we'll we'll find out. Uh, that we will. Yeah, I, I will say this: it's, you know, never a dull moment. No, that's well. Yeah, that's. That's true. I, I would I would really really love a dull moment. I would love a dull moment. I I was thinking about that today. I'm I'm tired. I I would love. <clears throat> I joked around uh, a few months ago that I'm gonna start a resort, like a just a we're gonna buy like a hotel in like Vermont, uh, and the way it's gonna work is that you go into this resort uh, and you turn in your phone, but then we give you a new phone uh, because I think the concept of like unplugging yourself and and turning in your phone would make people more anxious. And so what right. we would do is we would give you a new phone, but it's programmed to only deliver you good news, uh, basically an alternate reality. Right. So you're in your nice hotel room, you turn on the TV, CNN is talking about what President Clinton did today, and <laughs> you get push notifications <laughs> that like North oh. Korea has agreed to get rid of all of its nukes. You know, like yeah. it's just a week of just fake information. Experiential to give you theater. A moment of of peace of mind yeah well we should be so lucky i think it's a great idea yeah put me on the wait list perfect all right thanks subscribe 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 and subscribe Thank you.